feet stand. Let's uh, bow our heads and pray, shall we? Lord God, we've been thinking how there is no other God like you. And we pray now that you would speak to us through your word. We thank you that uh, you came to dwell among your people. And we pray that we would be obedient to your words uh, and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Uh, Do please take a seat. And uh, if you have that reading that Carol uh, read for us open in front of you, that would be very, very helpful. Um, I don't know how much you remember of your school days, but... um, One of the most memorable days uh, of my school career was when Prince Charles came to visit. Uh, It didn't happen very often, you'll be pleased to know. Uh, It happened uh, once. We had uh, been fundraising to open a new wing. Uh, We'd had a uh, a wing that was basically falling apart and, uh, you know, was leaking and all this kind of thing. And uh, we had a big fundraising drive and and eventually we, you know, it was built and he came to open it. Uh, It was very, very exciting. He arrived in a helicopter, which was pretty cool, I thought. Uh, he came to watch us play rugby. He made some approving noises at dodgy A-level artwork that sort of meant something, but no one was quite sure what. Um, he made a speech, and then he finally cut the, uh, cut the ribbon, and, uh, and it was open. Uh, and after all the fundraising, all the hard work that had gone in over the, the year or so to raise the money, it was a great way of finishing things off and uh, celebrating uh, if you've been with us uh, at uh, Trinity over the last few weeks, uh, you'll be aware that we've been in 1 Kings, uh, and we've been looking particularly at the life of King Solomon. Uh, we've seen Solomon uh, come to power, uh, be established on the throne of Israel. Uh, we've seen the, uh, him set about building a temple for the Lord, uh, which we've uh, seen in lots of uh, detail. And finally, we've got to that moment where the temple uh, is opened and uh, dedicated. It's an occasion for much joy and celebration, as these things uh, always are. And yet it's not simply a dry report of what went on on that great day. Uh, The account that the writer of Kings gives us is one that is carefully shaped in order to teach us three fundamental truths about the God of Israel and our God. This God who we worship, this God that there is no other God like you in heaven above or on earth below. Solomon began his prayers with that wonderful declaration, didn't he, in uh, verse 23 of chapter 8. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth below. And the chapter is structured to show exactly why is God like that? Why is God so unique? Why is he so great? Uh, So there are three big sections uh, in our narrative across the chapter. We're going to uh, look at them uh, uh, in sequence uh, and pick out that truth that each one of them uh, teaches uh, for us. Uh, So the first one that we'll look at is the arrival of the ark, uh, scene one if you're taking notes, uh, which teaches us that God dwells with his people. The arrival of the ark, which teaches us that God dwells with his people. Uh, so from sort of verses 1 through to 13. Uh, I quite enjoy uh, detective novels. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, how often when you read these things, it's the smallest details that are the most telling in helping you work out what's been going on. And actually it's like that in this passage here. Uh, in verse 2 we have this throwaway line that would be very easy to pass over, uh, which tells us about this, the whole setting of the temple's dedication. Uh, Look down with me at verse 2 of uh, chapter 8. We are told, All the men of Israel came together to King Solomon 
at the time of the festival in the month of Ethanim, the seventh month. Uh, That is a reference to the festival of booths, one of the many festivals of the nation uh, of Israel. Uh, The festival of booths celebrated God giving rest to his people after their years uh, in the wilderness, 40 years wandering the desert. Uh, From the start, the writer is making a really significant statement. He is saying that the period of wilderness is over. Uh, The house of God is moving from a temporary dwelling, the tent that uh, it it was uh, when they were in the wilderness, now to a more permanent structure, the temple. Uh, It's easy, isn't it, to to pass over that, but it's very, very significant. This is a major shift uh, in Israel's history and in how God is dealing with his people. Uh, He continues, he also stresses how every part of Israel's leadership is involved in this uh, moving the ark from its its, uh, old home to its new home. You can see that, can't we? Verse uh, verse 3, all the elders of Israel arrived. The priests took up the ark and they brought up the ark of the Lord uh, and the tent of meeting and all the sacred furnishings in it. Uh, This is an act that is uniting the whole people of God. It's got massive significance for the whole nation It is, however, we notice, the special task of the priests uh, to enter the Holy of Holies, to carry the ark. They were the only ones who were allowed to come in. Uh, And as they travel, the writer tells us, uh, they offer sacrifices as a reminder of how God's people have constantly failed him. And yet he has been uh, faithful to them. He's loved them and he's blessed them. Uh, Eventually, we're told, as we've uh, been reading, that the temple is reached. They put the ark in the inner sanctuary under the cherubim. And again, it's a small detail that is of great significance for us. Uh, Look uh, with me at uh, verse 9. The writer says for us, There was nothing in the ark except the tombstone tablets that Moses had placed in it at Horeb, where the Lord made a covenant with the Israelites after they came out of Egypt. Uh, You will, I'm sure, remember back in uh, Exodus, after the escape from Egypt, so God's people have come out of Egypt, they're in the desert, Uh, God had made a covenant, an agreement with his people at uh, Mount Sinai. Uh, He delivered his law to them, summarised in the uh, Ten Commandments on the two tablets of stone. Perhaps you've seen the the old film, or read it in the Bible, whichever's better. (laughs) Summarised his law in the two, uh, two tablets of stone, the Ten Commandments. And it's these items, these two tablets, that are placed uh, in the ark. Again, very significant. The writer is saying that the people of God, therefore, are to live under the authority and the instruction of God's word. Expressed here in the law, the two tablets, this very physical expression of God's word. And that is the thing that is given place of honour in the ark, inside the Holy of Holies. That's the thing that they take in, these two uh, tablets of stone. Uh, Quite often, I I guess, we come across people, don't we, who say something along the lines of, "Um, if I could just see God, then I'd believe in him. You've probably heard people say that. Perhaps you've thought that yourself at at some point. Uh, I guess it's a great thing to ask, but essentially what it's saying is is almost the wrong way around, isn't it? It's saying if... God has somehow hidden himself, and if you just do me the favour of turning up on my terms, then I'll believe in him. Essentially, that's, I think, what it's saying. The truth is that God has revealed himself, the Bible says. He has revealed himself, not necessarily in a way that suits us, tickles our fancy, suits our whims, 
but he has revealed himself through his eternal and unchanging word. The scriptures, and then supremely in the Lord Jesus, his son, who is the living word, uh, the word made flesh, uh, we encounter through the pages of scripture. Uh, We continue to encounter God primarily through his word. What was true uh, for Israel is true for us today. Uh, Many people ask us why we spend so much time teaching the Bible at Trinity and encouraging people uh, to dig into the scriptures uh, on their own. We do it because we believe with all our hearts that this is where we primarily encounter God. It is in his word. God is a God who has revealed himself in his written word and supremely through his son. Uh, If we want to know God, if we want to encounter God for ourselves, we must read his word. We must take it seriously. We must listen to it. And we must obey it. God's presence is tied to his word. It was true for Israel. It's true today. As the priests uh, withdraw from the uh, inner sanctuary, uh, there is an amazing thing happens. The cloud of God's glory descends and fills uh, the temple. Uh, in the wilderness, that had happened uh, in when they dedicated the tabernacle. Remember as well, it was the cloud of God's glory, wasn't it, that led the people uh, by day as they were walking uh, through the desert. Uh, the cloud is, I guess, the physical sign of God dwelling with his people. It's a, it's a physical indication for them that God is here, his presence is here. Uh, the New Testament shows us that we don't uh, need a cloud. When we meet, we don't expect a, a cloud to come and gather because actually God is here by his spirit in our hearts. When we trust the Lord Jesus, he comes to dwell uh, by his spirit in our hearts. Uh, he is inside us. We are his temple, as we were thinking about last week. We are the fulfillment of his temple. The temple is the place where God dwells. He dwells inside his people by his spirit. How astonishing it is, isn't it, that the creator God, the God who uh, flung stars into space, who made the heavens and the earth, who is far above all we could uh, ever imagine, comes to dwell with his people as a gift of his grace. Is that not remarkable? I think it's amazing. And one day in his new creation, he promises that we will see him face to face. Look back to the uh, end of the Bible, Revelation chapter 21. One day we will see him face to face. We will dwell with him uh, entirely unhindered uh, in his presence and in his new creation. Uh, It was very nice of Prince Charles to come and pay a visit to us at school. But as you can imagine, he didn't uh, stay very long. He was off to the next engagement pretty uh, sharpish. Uh, His presence, we might say, was fairly fleeting. God is not like that, thank goodness. Uh, The arrival of the ark in the temple is a reminder for us that we worship a God who is relational. He cares about his people. He is committed to them. He doesn't just turn up one day and then disappear the next. He cares. He is relational. He is committed to his people. He's made it possible to know him through his son, And one day he promises that we will know him face to face. We will see him as he is and we will be like him. And the question for all of us, I guess, is do we know him in that way? Uh, He has revealed himself to us. He holds out his hand and he says, do you want to know me? I'm here if you want. Uh, Do we know him and are we committed to making others known? We've uh, known to others. We've heard, haven't we, uh, this morning already. Many opportunities, who cares, community games, holiday club. Ways in which we can make God known to, uh, to people around us. Uh, are we doing that? Do we know him 
are we committed to making him known to others? That's the first uh, scene, uh, the uh, scene of the uh, ark being brought into the temple. Uh, The second scene, more briefly, is uh, the scene of Solomon's thanksgiving, which teaches us that God is a God who keeps his promises. Uh, God is a God who keeps his promises. Uh, Look with me from uh, verse 14 onwards. There was a a writer called Jonathan Swift who once remarked that promises are a bit like pie crusts because they're made to be broken. It's a bit of a cynical comment, isn't it? But it rather captures, I think, what many people uh, think is true of promises. Uh, That essentially they're a bit worthless, they're untrustworthy. If you make a promise, then you've probably got your fingers crossed behind your back and uh, if it comes true, that's nice, but I can't expect it. How different is the attitude of Solomon in his Thanksgiving speech? Uh, He praises God for the fulfilment of all his promises. And he celebrates how this building of the temple, this this day that they've been waiting for, is the fulfilment uh, of his plan that's been seen in the history of his people. Uh, He starts by looking back at uh, the example of his father David. Uh, So from uh, from verse uh, 15 onwards, uh, he says, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, who with his own hand has fulfilled what he promised with his own mouth to my father David. Uh, he, uh, he, what God has done is he has brought Israel out of Egypt. Uh, all that he promised David has come true. Uh, and that concrete evidence that he gave his people in bringing them out of, Israel, out of Egypt, as he promised, uh, paves the way, I guess, for the rest of his dealings with them. Uh, the people can know that God is faithful to his promises because they've seen him in the past. It's like that with many people, isn't it? You trust somebody if you've, uh, if you've had experience of that in the past. If you know that somebody keeps their promises, then you're more, more likely to trust them uh, for the future. Uh, God can be trusted because he's proved it. He has brought his people out of, Israel, out of Egypt and he's remained faithful to them. Uh, It hasn't all been plain sailing, uh, however. Verses 17 to 19 make that very clear. Uh, David had had a plan to, uh, in his heart, build a temple. And yet various things had got in the way. And it hadn't yet been the time for God to work. Uh, Perhaps there were times when the Israelites had wondered if God had forgotten his promise. If it had been something he'd made and perhaps he hadn't really had an intention of completing it after all. And yet, as God had promised, Solomon has succeeded David, and he's built the temple. What God had promised has come true. It's been finally realised. I guess for many of us, we will know in our heads, won't we, that God is faithful to his promises. We can say that, we can sing it loudly. And yet, perhaps we struggle, I think, to see... Why it's so worth Solomon praising uh, God for that, as he does here. I wonder if it makes a bit more sense if we think about it from the perspective of the rival gods that were around at the time. Uh, The pagan gods of the ancient Near East were not renowned for their fidelity to their promises. In fact, the stories abound of how people were trying to make sacrifices to them in order to get them on side in the hope that they wouldn't just bail out on their promises. Uh, We don't worship... um, you know, Ishtar or Isis or any other sort of ancient uh, pagan gods. But we do certainly worship the gods of power, don't we? The gods of sex, money, the classic uh, triads that we always come up with. Many others which we can think about. Success in our career, success in relationships. Not necessarily bad things. 
but they, if we put them in the first place, they become rivals to God. And all of them are rivals that make promises of blessing and satisfaction that ultimately they can't keep. They promise what they can never keep. Only God, the one who has acted in history in the person of his son, to secure his people, to offer forgiveness and a fresh start. He's never once abandoned his people. Whatever they've done, he has always remained faithful to what he said he would do. Only he can be relied upon to keep his promise. It was true for Israel. It is true today. Uh, The one who makes his promises keeps them. Might take a while to materialise, just as it did with the temple. It may not appear quite how we expect it uh, to appear. But he will always keep his promises. We can always say with Solomon, as he does in verse 20, the Lord has kept the promise that he has made. We can echo that in our hearts. And it's a good discipline, isn't it, to think back over our Christian life and to think how God has kept his promises. Uh, Many of us, I'm sure, have got uh, tales that we could tell of how God has been faithful to us over the years, through years of struggle, when times have been good, maybe when times have been bad, maybe when we haven't expected uh, anything's come of things. He's been faithful to his promise. Uh, and let me encourage you just to spend some time, perhaps over the next uh, few weeks, thinking about how uh, God has been faithful and, uh, and how you can praise him for that. A great discipline to think about. Uh, we can trust and praise him, for he is the God who keeps his promises, just as Solomon praises him. Let's move on, shall we, to uh, scene three. From verse 22 through to the end of our chapter. We're not going to look at everything, you'll be pleased to know, but uh, just highlight a few things. Uh, scene three, Solomon's dedication prayer, uh, which teaches us that God is a God who shows his grace. God is a God who shows his grace. Uh, Solomon has been looking back over God's uh, past grace to his people. Uh, and in this final long dedication prayer, he, he essentially asks that this will continue uh, to be so, um, verse 23, again, we've said this, sums, sums it up, really. It sums up the, the whole chapter. It sums up Solomon's prayer. O Lord, God of Israel, there is no God like you, in heaven above or on earth below, you who keep your covenants of love with your servants, who continue wholeheartedly in your way. God is a God who works in his steadfast love and grace for his obedient people. Every miracle, every saving act, everything that God has ever done for his people flows from his grace, his undeserved love for them. And it's this conviction that drives uh, Solomon's realism in the rest of the prayer. Uh, Essentially, it's structured. He presents seven scenarios um, uh, where Israel is going to be in future need of God's help. Uh, Seven scenarios, they range from all kinds of things, from famine and pestilence through to to being in in exile. Uh, Five of them are directly resulting um, from sin, Uh, but there are all sort of seven scenarios where Israel is going to be in future need. Uh, Perhaps it's tempting, I certainly thought this when I was reading the chapter, thinking, well, well, it's a bit of a bit poor of Solomon to sort of bring a downer to the party. You know, things have been exciting so far. Why does he have to be so, uh, such a fun sponge and bring everything uh, down again? And yet, the truth is that he faces up to the truth that God's people are still sinners. Things are great. God's kept his promises. God has been faithful. The temple has been built. Things are looking good. And yet, 
the sad truth is that God's people haven't changed. They're still as messed up as they've always been. And it's going to go off the rails pretty quickly. Uh, They're still sinners. Their sinful nature is going to have consequences for years to come. He's coldly realistic. And yet, whilst he's realistic, he doesn't despair. Uh, Look at the worst-case scenario he presents. This is from verse uh, 46. Flick on with me, if you will. We'll just look at this one. Uh, The worst-case scenario he suggests for God's people, that they might end up in exile because of rebellion, because they've turned their back on God, and God says, okay, you can go into exile, and uh, you can be uh, enslaved uh, to to another people again. Uh, The worst-case scenario that uh, he could possibly come up with, and yet even there, in the depths of despair... Solomon says there's still hope. Uh, If they repent and plead for grace, verse uh, 47, then there remains forgiveness and mercy. Uh, Verse 47, if they have a change of heart in the land where they're held captive, and they repent and plead with you in the land of their conquerors, and they say, we've sinned, we've done wrong, we've acted wickedly. If they turn back to you with all their heart and soul in the land of their enemies who took them captive... And pray to you towards the land you gave their fathers, towards the city you've chosen, and the temple I built for your name. Then from heaven, your dwelling place, hear their prayer and their plea, and uphold their cause. Solomon prays in confidence. He rejoices that God will remain faithful to his people in his grace, just as he's promised. No matter what they do, no matter how far away they go from God's plan for them, God will not abandon his people. He promises forgiveness. There is hope. Even if he ends up disciplining them, it's always going to be out of his grace in order that they might return to him. And that story that I guess Solomon looks forward to is the story of the Bible, is it not? Uh, The plot of the Bible is that God has always remained gracious to his people. Uh, whatever they've done, no matter how far away they have strayed from him, how, no matter how much, how many times they have said, look, we want to do it our own way, we don't care what you think, God has always remained gracious to his people. He's done it supremely. The ending of the story we know is that he sent his son to be the substitute for our sin, to die in our place, to play the punishment for our sin, for our rebellion, the punishment that we deserved. God has been unswervingly gracious to his people. He has made a way for us to be forgiven, for us to know him. And all that he asks of us in return is the same that he asked of his people in in Israel, that we should turn away from what we know to be wrong, to come back to him, uh, to ask for his forgiveness. When we do so, he promises that he will give it. Uh, St. John writes wonderful words in his uh, first letter, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God is always gracious. He always has a heart uh, to receive us again. The pattern of chapter 8 of 1 Kings is the pattern of the gospel. It's the pattern that is sealed in the blood of Christ, and it's the pattern that still operates today. God still operates. He is a God of grace. It's still true. Uh, Realism is rarely comfortable, is it? Uh, But it is necessary. You would... uh, wouldn't think highly of somebody who uh, maybe applied for a job that they weren't very qualified for or uh, decided to build a house and they didn't uh, have the money or the resources to do that. It's never comfortable, but it is important. Uh, However much we might try and avoid it, uh, the Bible gives us 
a very realistic picture of the human race. It says that all of us have turned to follow our own way. We've turned away from God, we've turned our back on him. We're separated from him. And yet, in his grace, he has made it possible for us to know him, for relationship to be restored. He holds out his hands and he says, come and know me, if you will. To all who turn to him, who will accept that Jesus has done everything possible to make it true to know him, make it possible to know him. He's made a way for us to be forgiven and to find friendship with him. And I wonder, as we close, perhaps there are some this morning who are particularly conscious of feeling far from God. Maybe there's something on your heart that you feel that God could never forgive you. He could never deal with that, that you will never uh, get that thing off your back. The story of one kings is a God who is gracious to his people. His arms are ever open to receive. Uh, And may I say, if you are in particular need this morning of prayer, there's always going to be prayer ministry at the front, as will be advertised. Uh, Don't go away without praying this through with somebody. God is a God who is gracious. He loves to forgive. He longs uh, to welcome us back in open arms. Why not return to him today? 1 Kings is uh, chapter 8 is far more than just an account of a celebration or a worship service. It, it is, in fact, a wonderful, powerful reminder of the uniqueness of our God, God who longs to dwell with his people in relationship with them, the God who is steadfast in keeping his promises, and the God who constantly shows his love and grace to us, whatever we do, throughout all generations. Uh, right at the end of his, uh, the chapter, Solomon closes uh, with a prayer that the hearts of his people uh, would ever be devoted to God uh, in response. Uh, and shall we uh, close by praying that prayer uh, through for ourselves? Let's uh, bow our heads, shall we? It's been lost in this chapter. And yet, Lord, we do pray indeed with Solomon that uh, our hearts would be fully committed to you, the Lord our God, uh, that we would live by your decrees and we would obey your commands. Lord, we thank you that you are faithful. You are faithful to your promises, to your people, Israel. You are faithful today. You long to know us. You dwell with us by your Spirit in our hearts. And Lord, we thank you supremely that you are faithful in your grace, that you do not treat us as our sins deserve. You always offer grace to us. And we pray indeed that we would live in the light of that grace, live lives worthy of our calling, and want to live to please you all the days of our life. In Jesus' name, amen.